Tyler Tringas, thanks for joining us today on the Principal Podcast. Yeah, what's up? Thanks for having me here. Um, I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you. You know, have the floor and introduce yourself here for a second. But you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is obviously you. Um, you've got a technical background. You've got an entrepreneurial background, um, and you're doing a little bit. You're doing something a little bit different now with the Com Fund. But I think it's it's kind of important um, within the context of some of the things that are going on in the investment landscape today. Uh, but a lot of um, a lot of the things that I've come to appreciate, and you know, we don't know each other super well, but um, some of the things that I've come to appreciate about you have come from reading your blog. Um, and you know, a lot of people seem to have the opinion that people don't really read blogs anymore these days. So mm. um, I found a lot of cool takeaways, and um, hopefully, to you know, get a chance to to pick your brain on some of those today. But um, please go ahead and introduce yourself or hand off to yourself however you want to. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm Tyler Tringas. Um, I am currently the founder and only general partner of the Calm Company Fund. Um, we are a, a fund that looks in many ways like you know your traditional like tech, private equity, or or venture capital fund. We provide capital, mentorship, community, all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. for entrepreneurs. We're a partner for them. We're not buying out them out of their business. You know, it's growth capital. Um, but we have a different sort of twist on it, which is that we invest in companies that you might normally think of as kind of like bootstrappers, right? Companies that are going to be profitable, that are not necessarily trying to raise their next round of capital as soon as possible. They're trying to grow at a sustainable pace, kind of on and on and on. And we call these calm companies and that's our, our sort of expertise. Um, before that, I was the founder of a software as a service company that was itself basically a calm company. <laughs> and so after I, I bootstrapped it and sold it, um, I was kind of like, hey, somebody should... Uh, help these kinds of companies out too, not not just the kind of like Silicon Valley, um, you know, hyper growth kind of uh, uh, entrepreneurs. So, um, so that's what I've been working on for the last three years. And then, yeah, before that, I did a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah. You you you've got a pretty wide variety of experiences, and um, that's why you know I was interested in having this conversation in the first place. Um, lived in Southeast Asia, micro mm-hmm. et etc. We'll get into that, but high level on. Calm Company Fund. Correct me if I have it wrong here as a non-technical guy, but sure. essentially, you know, the traditional model of, of VC is, you know, invest in these boomer bust operations. And if you spread your your investment allocation across a wide enough variety of, of companies, then, you know, one of them will boom. And while the others may bust, you, you'll hit your returns. But your kind of macro high level um, thesis is invest in cash flowing profitable companies that might not have that boomer bust potential, but you know, will grow at a an above and you know eight ten percent rate year over year, um, and so you'll have less bust, but you'll have less booms as well. But you know, you're ultimately getting at generally the same place, but different ways of skinning the cat. Ultimately, is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically everybody investing in entrepreneurs at the early stage these days, which would primarily be angels and VCs, Mm -hmm. they all have adopted this model, which is basically we're going to have tons and tons and tons of strikeouts, but we're going to have, you know, a very small number of home runs or grand slams that are going to make up all of our returns. And um, that is, I think, a valid way to invest in certain kinds of companies, particularly ones that 
are going after huge markets with real like winner take all dynamics and things like that, you know, like Uber being a canonical example, right? There were just so many benefits to having tons of capital and growing super fast and getting into every city in the world. You had to take that kind of model to, to fund that kind of company. Mm-hmm. But most companies, most uh, opportunities and most founders you know, either don't want to or shouldn't build a business with that mentality, right? They should be trying to maximize their percent chance of success. They should be looking for, hey, I want a high percentage chance of hitting a single double or a triple. And then I want to do that over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. And there's been basically nobody who has been aligned and built an entire fund around that thesis that we're just going to hit a lot of doubles and triples. We may get, you know, an occasional home run, but we're not banking our whole strategy on that. Interestingly enough, it seems like, and this is just anecdotally based, you know, based on what I've seen on Twitter and just various conversations, it seems like people are kind of coming to that realization as well. Um, that, you know, this, this way of thinking and, um, this way of, of conducting business in the VC space isn't necessarily the best outcome for a lot of people. And it it isn't, you know, it's like your, your incentives, your incentives almost aren't aligned. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think people are starting to to realize that this is the case and and that you know founders should be focused more on sustainable business models? Well, you're exactly right, and and the reason is just because you know gravity is starting to kick back into the market, right? Mm-hmm. You know, for the last couple of years in particular, we've been in this sort of twilight zone, you know, of extended, you know, zero interest rates and free money and stimmy checks and the whole thing, right? That like, it was this game of musical chairs where, you know, everybody was just doing fine, passing the ball off to each other at increasingly high valuations. But at some point, the music stops and some people are left holding the bag, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's what we're starting to see right now is that the music has sort of stopped and folks are saying, oh, wow, like when I raised a ton of capital and hired tons of people at a super high valuation, now I have to either shut down or lay off half my staff. You know, there, there are consequences to this approach. But for a couple of years, we, we there really were no consequences, right? They just more and more money kept plowing into, you know, to every business. And so the, the people who YOLO'd the hardest were sort of rewarded in the short term. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think folks tend to operate on a very kind of like, um, it's surprising how much the market doesn't have visibility down the road. They're very reactive to like, this has mm-hmm. happened now. Let's react accordingly versus saying, this is pretty much inevitable. Let's go ahead and act proactively. Um, so, yeah, we're starting to see that reactive effect right now where a lot, a lot, a lot of investors and entrepreneurs are realizing like, wow, it would be so awesome if we were just profitable right now and we didn't care that it's going to be really hard to raise our next round. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. And I think it's, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to happen, right? Like it's, it's obviously, it's going to cause a lot of pain for people and it's going to be a mindset shift, but ultimately it should be, it should be healthy given the level of activity we've seen over the last call it 12 years or so. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it'll be nice for people to take this stuff a little more seriously again, right? Mm-hmm. There was just, just like extreme levels of suspension of disbelief where, you know, increasingly bizarre, exotic kind of useless things we're getting you know enormous amounts of capital put into them and at the end of the day like i think it's better for everybody if you know capital and entrepreneurial energy are going towards things that actually have value and actually useful versus you know 
basically pyramid schemes, right? Where it's just all about passing the buck to the greater fool, you know? So, so that's good for everybody. Everybody wins. Yep. Yep. So, um, within the context of, of your kind of overall thesis with comp company fund, what are your, what are your thoughts on competition? Because, um, somebody in the, in the VC and investing world that a lot of people look up to Peter Thiel said competition Mm. is for losers. And essentially, I think my interpretation of his point was that you want to be trying to be as authentic as possible and kind of thinking about not the existing infrastructure, but trying to do things differently. Um, and so if you're competing, you're, you're kind of just doing the same thing as everybody else and you're kind of limiting how much potential you can actually have. So within the context of your kind of, um, overall macro thesis of trying to be profitable and sustainable, what do you think about, how do you think about competition? I guess at the micro level, does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I um, I won't say I'm a a huge Peter Thiel fanboy and agree with him across the board, but I think he's dead right about this. Um, I really and it's funny actually how you know as associated as he is with the Silicon Valley venture mindset, you that's actually pretty contrarian. I think a lot of people say, hey, I need to be going after the big shiny market. I need to be getting in there and just raising more capital than my competitors and moving faster, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of like, carve out your own niche and don't compete with anyone. And so we we do that in two layers. One is having this investment thesis that in and of itself is very you know, differentiated, different, it leads Mm -hmm. us down different paths, it leads us to different decision making. Um, You know, so, um, you know, we really have very little competitors in in terms of like, as an asset class, like investing in these kinds of companies at the early stage, there's lots of people who want to invest in them once they get, you know, to like a million bucks a year in revenue, um, but, but practically nobody investing before that. So I'm completely a fan of that. And then we also deploy that within our investment thesis, where we think one of the well, like one of the common questions we'll get is like, oh, well, you know, aren't you only going to be investing in the companies that like didn't get into like YC or tech stars or traditional VCs? And there's some truth to that. It is something that we have to make sure we're avoiding. And one of the ways we do it is by doubling down on this like escape competition through authenticity and through niching. So we invest in a lot of companies that are operating in markets that are just not the markets are big enough that they can build a great business, but they're not big enough that they could ever build a billion or $10 billion business, which means that we're just not competing with, you know, VCs or accelerators or anything, because this is just not a unicorn kind of opportunity. It's an opportunity to build a, you know, 50 million, hundred million dollar business, um, you know, that's going to maybe raise one or two rounds of capital and, and generate a great return for those investors, but it's not going to be your traditional venture outcomes. Yeah. And we take that to heart. Like we proactively avoid markets with, you know, lots of competition from other kinds of investors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good advice. Yeah. And I, I mean, to your point, like, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. It might not be the sexiest thing to say, right. When people are talking about building a company, you know, from the ground up, you know, it's always, it's always, you kind of hear the, the same um, archetype story, right? Like quit your job, you're, you're scraping by on pennies and you have such a massive idea. And then, you know, it's a billion dollar business, but it doesn't necessarily always play out that way. In fact, it's your odds are so much slimmer. So I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to play in a smaller market that, you know, doesn't necessarily, as you said, have that unicorn potential. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, one of the interesting dynamics that I've observed, I have a Twitter thread about it, um, is how often 
you know, people really like to put to juxtapose like moonshot entrepreneurs, you know, like Elon Musk and these kinds of guys with, you know, lifestyle entrepreneurs. They try to say these are two different kinds of people. Some people have the grit and some people don't. But actually, if you start to dig through the history of a lot of the moonshot entrepreneurs building some of the biggest, you know, most world beating businesses, you very often find that they actually built a smaller, slightly more boring business and sold it for like, you know, far less than a billion dollars, but yeah. also like never work again or never worry about rent again money, right? Five million, 10 million, $20 million. And then that gave them the freedom to take these huge bets and not be worried about how am I going to pay my mortgage? So I think they're much closer to an evolution um, than they are totally different categories of, of people. I'm actually really glad that you said that because um, I was reading a book by Adam Grant called Originals, right? And a point that he makes in that book is that, you know, a lot of times we glorify the risk taking or, or lack of risk aversion that some people have when they're starting a new venture, right? They'll quit their jobs and they'll do whatever. But actually, if you study most entrepreneurs, the people who hedge their bets ended up actually being more successful. And And by hedge their bets, I mean, you know, had income on the side or had a w2 job or you know were were building something for cash flow to at least hold them over while they were working on their grand idea um and then at the same time i came across across your story and that's kind of something that you did so um you know before we get to to the actual question why don't we talk a little bit about your background a little bit so you you were in in clean tech consulting is that right yeah, I started my career. I was not in tech. Um, so I was an economics major in college and then right, started yeah. working for, it was a startup in that it was, you know, a, a relatively small new company, but it wasn't a startup in the traditional software sense. We were basically doing like McKenzie style consulting, uh, but mm -hmm. just focused on the clean tech markets. So solar, wind, biofuels, electric vehicles, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how long were you doing that? Um, I was with the company for about three and a half years in total. So I started off as an analyst and then eventually was running their modeling group. And then the company was acquired by Bloomberg. Um, so we became a part of Bloomberg LP and I worked there for about another year and a half as their head of energy economics. How did, how did things change after the, um, after the acquisition by Bloomberg? What did it become a lot more corporate and, and rigid? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a good, quick, you know, early in my career lesson that, you know, I'm just really not cut out for working at large corporations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I like to make decisions quickly and, you know, be able to sort of make quick pivots when the market changes and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, everything just got very bogged down in terms of decision making, everything had to be planned, you know, years in advance and that sort of stuff, which of course, it, that's the way you should run a, a, an organization of that size. But I learned that it, it wasn't for me, which is, which is why I kind of started teaching myself to code, started learning about tech, started picking up some books, listening to some podcasts and, and thought, you know, I think I should probably like jump into this market. I think it's a better fit for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what did, what did that process look like for you? Cause I, I know you, you mentioned a, a handful of things that you were doing there, right? So you realized this corporate life probably isn't for me and I, I want some more flexibility and freedom, mm -hmm. um, podcasting, coding. How did you, how did you teach yourself how to code? I, I think I read on your blog that you taught yourself how to code in like three months or something. That's, that's pretty crazy. I, I, I just from my own perspective. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, so for me, 
the, the main tipping point for me was that I really identified the opportunity that I wanted to go after. I did, I was at least not naive enough to recognize that I did not really have a lot of like unfair advantages, um, jumping into the tech world. You know, I didn't study computer science. I didn't go to Stanford. I wasn't plugged into, you know, the, the networks that would intro you to angels and VCs. Um, so I felt like I needed something that would give me an edge and the edge that I found was, you know, I was one of the, you know, w without sounding too grandiose, like one of the world's leading experts on forecasting where some of these, um, in particular, clean tech markets were going. And mm -hmm. I identified an opportunity in the residential solar space. So solar for your, for your home, where, um, you know, the entire market was very focused on the hard costs, like bringing down the cost of the physical products. And I had sort of modeled out that, hey, within the next year, we're going to have a tipping point where actually most of the costs are going to be these soft costs of which customer acquisition is a huge one. And nobody was working on that. So I said, okay, like, I think I can use software to make customer acquisition and that whole process much easier in the solar market. Uh, and I think I can see this before anybody else. And, and mm -hmm. so that was the thing that I initially kind of started a little bit of doing some research just to, just to understand if what I kind of had in my head was even technically feasible. Um, so that was when I started to get some books on coding and stuff like that, just to understand the edges of like, okay, is this crazy? Is this doable? That sort of thing. Uh, and then I just quit my job, which I don't know if I totally advise, but you know, I, I hadn't raised money for the business, uh, you know, basically just threw myself into the next couple months of learning to code, building the first version of what I had in my head, um, partnering with a few people, and then, um, you know, starting to take it out to the market, both uh, for customers and investors. That's awesome. So let's talk about what your thought process was when you quit your job. You, you realize that there's clearly a dislocation in the market here, right? There's, there's an opportunity for you to go work on something with your domain expertise that you've accumulated over the last three years mm -hmm. that nobody else is really thinking about, right? You pick up a couple books on coding and you realize that it's actually feasible mm -hmm. and you just jumped right in. Walk me through your perspective on risk. Like what, what is your level of risk aversion and how do you, how do you think about risk? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, certainly I was a little bit uh, naive in the in the sense of, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, it's it's a good trait to be just a little bit naive and about all the risks because you can't talk yourself out of it. Um, yeah. So for sure, I definitely just like sort of jumped in with both feet. Um, but I think underlying a lot of it is something that's become really common advice for entrepreneurs, but wasn't at the time, which is, you know, the benefit of keeping your personal burn rate really low, right? You're, you're sort of like how much you actually need to, you know, not just survive, but also like not completely burn out, not hate your life, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, right. And I was super lucky that I graduated with basically no student loans uh, because I went to a state school. So I didn't have that kind of weighing on me. And I did eventually move back to New York right away, but I pretty quickly said, hey, you know, there's no need for me to be here. I can work on my laptop. And so I had that flexibility to move to like low cost of living places with, with good internet connections and keep that burn rate really low. So I never really felt like there was like a risk of ruin, right? Where if mm -hmm. I had had, you know, a family with kids and a mortgage and, you know, the need to keep up really expensive health insurance, you know, all that kind of stuff, I was able to 
to, to say, okay, if everything just completely goes to crap, like I'm going to be okay. I'm still young. I have skills, you know, <laughs> like this will all work out. And so I always try to keep it within those boundaries of like, I'm not betting the farm, you know, there's no risk of ruin baked into this. Um, but within that spectrum of like, this is survivable bets. You know, I do think it makes sense to, to take big swings and to try and do something that's going to sort of meaningfully change your life, you know? Yep. Yep. Were there, what was your internal monologue kind of like at that point? Were there points where you were, you know, super, super, super bullish on jumping in and taking that leap or were there times where you kind of, you know, reined yourself in a little bit or was it just like, all right, you know what, I've kind of made my mind up and I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, um, there was very little doubt. It was like, mm-hmm. I was very confident in how we had constructed our plan. Um, you know, very confident that we were right about the relevant market conditions and all that kind of stuff. So we were just kind of powering ahead. Um, mm-hmm. and we were able to raise like a very small kind of angel round. Um, but then we got into the process of, um, pitching VCs because again, we were a little bit naive and there wasn't nearly as much good information about how that market works out there. Um, in the subsequent decade, there's been a lot of good blogging and podcasts and all that kind of stuff that, that peel back the curtain about how venture capital and, and more professionalized angels work. But at the mm-hmm. time, it wasn't clear. It was just like, okay, you know, we're using software here. We need some money to get to where we need to go and we should pitch VCs, you know? Um, and so we ended up, I mean, we, we probably pitched 400, uh, you know, individuals um, across like venture capital and angels and stuff like that to try and raise the capital we needed for the business. And we kept saying, hey, you know, we have this really solid roadmap, but the market was, you know, it's grown a lot since then, but it was sort of like, yeah, this is probably going to be a 50 million, $100 million business, but we only need like a million bucks. So like, that will be great, right? You know, and it was just like wrong. (laughs) That was the wrong answer again and again and again and again. Yeah. Uh, and the business ended up failing, um, for that reason, we basically just kept, we kept getting the feedback of like double down, go after a bigger market, which, you know, sort of led us down the path of, okay, well, let's do the kinds of things like, let's not charge for it up front. Let's try and scale. Let's try and prove there's a big market here. Meanwhile, we're not raising money. We're not, uh, making revenue and we're spending down, you know, our personal money and our, our small amount of angel money. So that was definitely like probably one of the most stressful experiences of my life was definitely. You know, so. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, h- hitting that wall again and again and again, it's really, fr- I have so much empathy for entrepreneurs because like pitching investors is just one of the most excruciating activities because you just, you pitch again and again and again, and there's like no feedback loop, right? They, mm-hmm. they give you advice, but it's, it's mostly BS. It's mostly just not the real reason they're not investing. So you just never feel like you're getting closer. It's like, you're just completely not there or you're there. (laughs) Um, And you just are stuck in that limbo for a long time. So um, yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was definitely the experience, but you know, I, I fully tested the theory that this can all go very wrong and, and I can still survive it because that's pretty much exactly what happened. So yeah. 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 So what were, what were some of the things that you did to minimize your expenses? I think you, you mentioned like living in Southeast Asia for a while and traveling from place to place, keeping your burn rate low. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I've always been, especially, you know, when I was younger, like notoriously cheap. So even Mm -hmm. though I moved back to New York, I moved back to 
So my, my last year at Bloomberg, I moved, they moved me to London, but I kept yeah. my room in an apartment that was like 50% below market, you know, and sublet it just to keep the optionality to go back there. So I went back there, you know, I was paying like $1,100 a month for a room in, in a three bedroom apartment in New York, which is exceptionally low already. Um, but after a couple of months there, you know, I, I kind of moved back because I had a network there. I wanted to, I knew I could meet with investors, et cetera, but quickly realized like this, I'm not getting enough value out of living in New York to justify the cost of being here. So I just literally sold my stuff and, you know, packed up a backpack and, and went and was a digital nomad for, um, in total about two and a half years. Um, yeah, more that's or less. very cool. Yeah. So, so that was yeah. able, I, I went to Southeast Asia. I went to, South America, um, Eastern Europe, Budapest, those kinds of places. And, you know, all in all, it's like probably had a third the cost of living that I would have in New York. Also had like a blast doing it. It was really cool. Okay. Like, um, you know, I met a lot of other entrepreneurs doing the same thing. And the good uh -huh. thing is like, you can just work really hard when you don't feel like you need a vacation because your vacation is right outside the door. So I would just work for sometimes like 20 days straight, you know, full days of work because I could wrap up and I could be like, oh, I'm going to go explore Machu Picchu or like Bangkok or whatever, you know? Um, so it was, yeah, it was a really big win-win for me for sure. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And I, I think, um, I think a lot of people are trying to experience some of those things a little bit now with, with, you know, hybrid work and remote work flexibility. Um, and so yeah. even non-technical roles, right? Like software engineers have obviously been able to do this forever, but even non-technical roles are realizing that, you know, they might not need to be in one location for so long. Yep. Um, do you think that we tend to overemphasize the importance of, of being in like a major metropolitan area? Like, like for an, for an example, you mentioned how, you know, New York, you had a network there and you might've been able to meet with people and investors, et cetera. Um, do you think we overestimate how important that is when you're, when you're trying to start a company or bring something up from the ground up? I'm not sure. I think it is pretty valuable, um, yeah. especially in the early phases, especially when you're trying to get your 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 idea right. I mean, because mm -hmm. one thing that um, you know, big cities are. I think I'm stealing this from Dave Perel, but you know, they're engines of serendipity, right? There's just you're just exposed to so many different interesting people, interesting ideas. You know, uh, that that's the kind of thing where you can put those connections together and and have the original idea that you want to go after. Um, and, you know, I am really happy that I have, you know, a really deep network of friends in places like New York and London, having lived there for a while, um, so that and I can kind of go back and really get like the 80-20 experience where, you know, when I was nomading or even now, you know, I live in Mexico City. Before this, we were living in Brazil. I'll block off like 10 days to two weeks to go to New York you know, once a year, once every 18 months to just mm -hmm. really plug back in, go to a bunch of meetups, host my own happy hours, just to like have people show up and see all my friends and really reignite that network, um, which I think would be hard to do if I had never lived there. Not impossible, yep. but um, sure. I think that's the right balance is, you know, living in those kinds of places is valuable, but um, it starts to have diminishing returns and you can really get a lot of the benefits. Um, just by kind of planting yourself there in periodic times and meeting a bunch of people and then, you know, going somewhere else. So yeah, yeah. that's, a, that's yeah. a good thought, right? Because a lot of times our primary motivations for wanting to live in a place like New York or LA or whatever is, is that, you know, you want to build your network out there, but who's to say that you can't spend, you know, 
two weeks at a time building your network and then living wherever else you're living, right? And then just taking periodic trips and tapping back into that network and checking in with people. Totally. And these days, yeah. you know, the the metaverse that is Twitter is, you know, pro- possibly you know, the, the best metropolitan area you can be, you know, networking in, uh, in the mm-hmm. world, I think, um, you know, as we were building our fund and all that, I, I was living in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, right? This blows people's minds who have raised funds because they're used to like lots and lots and lots of in-person meetings and handshakes and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, no, we raised like most of our fund one through Twitter. You know, just yeah. like yeah. writing about yeah. it and having people DM me and saying, I'd like to invest. And, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. And so it, it appears that you're kind of reaping the, the fruits of your labor from your blog and your Twitter and some of the YouTube videos and stuff that you've put out. When mm-hmm. did you when did you start writing online? Um, I think I started writing online uh, basically in the early days of launching my my last business, um, mm-hmm. it was a software business. It was called store mapper is very, very niche e-commerce yeah. tool. Um, and you know, I sort of, again, through kind of nomading, I was bumping into lots of people who were, um, you know, some people who had built these kinds of businesses, bootstrapped them. Some, some folks who were like peers who were building them and, and had revenue and then just tons of people who wanted to build them. Right. This was like the dream to have a, you know, recurring revenue software business that you could run from anywhere in the world. Um, and so pretty early on, I was like, OK, I think I'm onto something here. And yep. I just started sharing. I just started writing these long blog posts, sharing, you know, what I had done, what I had learned, what the progress was, what failed, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and those caught on a ton and helped me build a network of awesome entrepreneurs. Um, you know, when I when I sold that business, I wrote a super long blog post about it that like for a brief period, not brief, actually for like years, it was the Google answer for selling a bootstrapped business, not even a software business. Like if you said, how do I sell a bootstrap business? The like bing answer was mm-hmm. this blog post that I wrote that mm-hmm. was like 10,000 yeah. words or something. Um, yeah. So I started writing then. How long was it before you kind of saw some traction and, and kind of like initial, I guess, returns, if you want to call it from, from your efforts online? It's a real, I mean, it's impossible to sort of quantify, but if you could quantify it, it would look a lot like compounding returns, right? So it would be like, okay, there's the needles barely moved for the first year, second year, third year, but then all of a sudden the compounding really kicks in and now it's creating massive value and accelerating every single year. Um, That's what it would look like. So, I mean, I was getting immediate returns in the form of just like, you know, meeting the occasional random new person who was also an entrepreneur who was like, I'm building companies like this too. Let's, mm-hmm. let's get on a call and get to know one another. So, I mean, that was valuable. Um, but for sure, it's something that is paying dividends uh, over time for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's kind of like the tough part about exposing, you know, putting your, putting yourself out there on, online and, and, you know, creating content, writing stuff, podcasts, et cetera. Right. Like, you give that advice to anybody and they're going to say, yeah, well, obviously I should be putting myself out there. Right. But it's, it's, it's so discouraging at times because it seems like you won't actually see the the fruits of your labor for, like you said, I mean, the compounding take, it took, you know, in your kind of quantification, it took like three years. Right. And it's yeah. just like, you just got to stay consistent and you have to be in it for the long haul for sure. Yeah. I mean, the good news is that I, I totally understand that. I think um, the ways to still motivate yourself are one, to recognize it as compounding, right? It's also 
annoying to be investing a hundred dollars a month when you're in your first job into your retirement account, but everybody mm -hmm. knows like, Hey, this adds up and compounds, like just keep at it. There's a very similar effect with, with writing. The other thing is that, you know, writing, just being a good, clear writer is something that a, I think can only really come with practice. People are innately, you know, have a little bit more skill than other random people, but, um, you mostly suck at writing if you haven't done a lot of writing. Um, yep. And so the only way to get better at it is to do a bunch of writing and being a good, clear writer is itself possibly one of the most valuable skills in the modern economy, because so much of what you do in any kind of leadership, sales, fundraising, like so many of these things, it's about being a good, compelling writer. You're, you're doing most of your work through, you know, emails and copy and pitch pitch materials and sales mm -hmm. decks and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, having spent a good amount of your life honing that craft is something that you'll just never regret. Yeah. hundred percent. I think it makes you, I think it makes you so much more concise. Um, and it really sharpens your ability to kind of organize your thoughts and, and present them in a, in the way that, like you said, copy, right? Like you're kind of, um, making a persuasive argument. Um, and writing is, writing is one of the best ways to kind of sharpen your skill set in doing that. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you feel about coding? Do you think coding is a skill that people should still be trying to learn when, you know, everybody, it seems everybody online knows how to code and that you can just hire things out as needed. Yeah. I mean, I think coding is a valuable skill that is overrated. Um, so it's, I'm not saying it's not valuable, but it's yeah. certainly become, um, a little bit blown out of proportion. The, you know, the good, the upside to learning how to code is that you can start a new internet business without anyone's permission, right? You literally can do what I did with my SaaS business and have an idea, sit down. I had a, uh, a, a long distance flight from San Francisco to Argentina that I booked with Miles and I literally just built a business, right? Just writing code. Um, so that's fantastic. And it's kind of, like that's really valuable in terms of just freedom and the ability to rapidly experiment and try things out. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, the opportunity cost of not knowing how to code is coming way, way, way down. Um, and it's being kind of gobbled at from, from both edges where there's more and more people who you can hire who know how to code. Those people have access to a lot of um, m more improved, modern, robust frameworks and tools. So, you know, the cheaper they are, they're much better than the cheap developers used to be, you know, five to 10 years ago. Um, so there's that element where it's just like much more attractive to hire people and pay them to do it. And mm -hmm. then on the other side of the equation, you have no code tools, which we're kind of huge proponents of and, and leverage at our firm where you can really do a lot of crazy stuff on the internet uh, that looks and feels a lot like stuff that should require code, um, but is actually sort of stitching together a number of different tools and automations and things like that without writing a line of code. Um, and so I think the, the value of learning to code is coming down quite a lot, um, potentially approaching other technical skills, like for example, like HVAC repair skills is like, I mean, you could get a, a really great job as an HVAC repair. People really underestimate like how much those guys get paid. Um, mm. But you know, it's, it's, it, I don't think it should be the kind of thing where people expect to get paid, you know, many hundreds of thousands of dollars for writing code. I think it's going to become a bit more of a blue collar skill um, on a pretty short timeline. 
Right, right. It seems it seems to be becoming pretty commoditized, especially yeah. with you know kind of the expansion of of companies being uh, or having a, a greater appetite to contract out that work globally. Totally. Right? And there's new frontiers yeah. where that's not true, right? Machine learning, AI, that kind of stuff is still yeah. in that ballpark of like there's really amazing you know, compounding value to, to understanding how to program that kind of stuff. Um, synthetic biology as well. You know, there's, there's plenty of opportunities for people who are really talented coders. I'm not saying they're all going to become HVAC repairmen, um, but the coding as we think of it in terms of, let's say, building a web application or a website or things like that um, is becoming commoditized pretty rapidly. Right. Yeah. I, to your point, it seems like you, you almost if you combine domain expertise in one area with coding, it seems to be a lot more powerful than just, yeah, I know how to code and I can, you know, put together an application, back end, front end, whatever. I completely agree with that. Yeah. It, it, it enables you also to unlock the value of your domain expertise much more quickly because mm -hmm. you, like a lot of the companies we invest in will follow this pattern of one founder worked in a particular industry for like 10 or 20 years, understands it back to front deeply and all the things that are wrong with it and, and where they need software. And then they just happen to meet or have a good friend or whatever who knows how to code is, is technical and they'll team up and, and build a company. But if you know how to code, you're not reliant on that serendipity of having that technical co-founder, right? You have both of those bundled. So any domain expertise you develop can also be turned into a, a tech product. Yeah, absolutely. So it's about first step is, is getting that domain expertise and, and having some experience in an in industry that's ripe for innovation. If yeah. You know. yeah. Um, is networking overrated? And at what point do you think it's important for people to start focusing on networking as opposed to formulating something cool or generating a cool idea? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I think I would break down the idea of networking into maybe like inbound networking and outbound networking. And so I wrote this blog post about like, I think it was like the best networking is not networking where yeah. I was sort of critiquing a lot of the really common advice that you would get out of business books and people visiting you in college and telling you about, you know, how to succeed in business was about really like outbound gregarious networking, right? Like uh, never eat lunch alone was like a, a bestseller when I graduated college. And I was like, that sounds terrible. Like I'm an introvert. I don't want to do any of that stuff. <laughs> um, you know, but it was the advice. It was like, you need to you know be forthright with your business card. You need to be constantly meeting people. You need to do all this kind of stuff, you know, go to a conference, you got to walk up and speak to everybody. Right. And uh, that was kind of like accepted wisdom. And I think one of the things I learned through experience, especially being an introvert who in my first job went to a bunch of conferences um, and then, you know, later just trying to attract people to me for things like the fund um, mm -hmm. is that it's really overrated that kind of like just gregarious outbound cold, you know, cold approach kind of uh, thing. And the much better approach is to just build something that attracts the right people to you. So that can be, you know, doing the work to become a speaker at a conference because you, in, in this case, like the first unlock for me was I created these kind of like proprietary data sets that, you know, I would gather from different sources that nobody had. And then I would tell the conference organizers, like, I'm going to present this, right? And they would say like, yeah, you need to present that. That sounds really cool. People are going to want to know that. And then I would present and then all these people who would ignore me, you know, if I had just walked in and, and tried to say hi, 
after I give that presentation, everybody wants to talk to you, right? And, and all and you, you know, all of the like relevant, important people want to talk to you. Um, and that was a lesson that I've kind of carried through, which is just like one good blog post, for example, going back to writing can be much more effective at networking, because the right people might read that and say, this is cool, I got to reach out to this guy, right? Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the, the problem with with the current, like, advice that everyone gets around networking is this, you know, you're kind of just there, right? Like try to go to as many networking events as you can and shake as many hands as you can and introduce yourself. Sure. Yeah. But you're kind of just there unless you're providing some sort of value or there's a reason for you to, if you're, if your networking isn't pointed, it just seems, it just seems like you're, you're kind of there and, and there's no reason for people to actually reach back out to you and reconnect with you. Right. Yeah. So I, th I think you need to have some kind of value or some kind of service that you're providing, or you need to be doing something like you said, thinking outside of the box where people want to talk to you, right? Exactly. Yeah. One of the most common sort of like mental models I've found useful is that oftentimes when you're trying to accomplish a goal, there's something way further, like earlier in the chain of events where you should have had like a point of much more leverage. And if you had put your effort there, then what you're trying to do now will be much, much easier. And I think that's kind of my view on networking is that, you know, you can go to 20 networking events, conferences, et cetera, with this model of just like walking around, shaking hands, saying hi, you know, and, and, and passing out business cards or, or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And you go to 20 of those, and that's not as valuable as doing a bunch of prep work to get a prime speaking role at one of those things, because you're only going to meet this subset of people that you happen to bump elbows into. Whereas like presenting to the whole conference and then having all the relevant people come up and speak to you all at once can be more valuable than all 20. It takes work. You don't just get invited. You can just show up most of the time you buy a ticket, right? So that's mm -hmm. very easy. So you can do the hard work of like being someone that, that people want to feature at these kinds of events. And that makes the networking part of the process much, much, much more easy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it seems like it, it all kind of ties into each other, right? Like building something or putting yourself out there online kind of just ties into, yeah, in a few years, you know, these things will, will you'll be able to reap the benefits of your, of your labor, right? For so long. Um, totally. And so it seems like you, you kind of have to really take a long-term view for a lot of this stuff um, and you really have to buy into it, right? Because you're not going to see returns for three, six, nine months, like it, it could take more than a year. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's true. And also, sometimes you have to do this kind of stuff without really having a plan. You know, I mean, I, so there's no way I could have launched our first fund without having built the track record and network that I had among very successful entrepreneurs um, through through my writing over the years. But I didn't have a plan all along to launch a fund. It was just, mm -hmm. you know, when that opportunity presented itself, the fact that I had spent seven years blogging and writing and generally convincing the right people that like, hey, this is a smart guy with good ideas. And most of the stuff he says turns out to be right. You know, like, like just building that that kind of trust um, turned out to be an essential ingredient to something that wasn't even on my roadmap. I kind of have a general, sure, I don't, I may not know you at a very personal level, but I kind of have a general idea of your story, your experiences, um, and kind of your motivations around why you've done the things you've done and, and started the Calm Company Fund, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you seem to be a highly internally motivated guy. Um, and I just wanted to ask, you, you know, what are, what are your motivations and, and kind of how do you, how do you think about 
motivation versus discipline? What is it? What has been more critical to some of the endeavors that you've undertaken in your life? That's a good question. Um, I think I've been pretty lucky to fall into, to some extent, things that um, I was really motivated to go after. Um, I don't know about fall into it, but maybe like uh, serendipitously exposed to an opportunity and then pounced on it, right? So um, a bunch of different things. You know, if you look at the trajectory of my career, it's it's kind of kind of scattershot. There's a lot of just like leaps from one one industry to another or one type of business to another. Um, sure. And I just kind of followed that that intuition and that interest. Um, I think fundamentally, like a lot of my motivation is just I don't, I hate being bored. I love learning new things. It's part of why, um, you know, like when I was in the, when I was in the clean tech space, there was a clear like fork in the road for me. And the one fork was to go into just straightforward finance, like the people just allocating capital for big renewable energy projects and stuff like that. And I would meet these folks who had been doing that for like 25 years. And it just seemed like, man, they hadn't learned anything. You know, like, I mean, they've gotten steadily better at this one kind of thing, but they just really, their job was not to to learn about a bunch of different things. Their job was to sort of be like mechanics at this yeah. one specific aspect. And that yeah. terrified me. And it like immediately ruled out that entire career trajectory for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've mostly just followed things that I, I find interesting. Um, try not to get bored, you know, um, running a fund is fantastic for this because you're constantly having to understand new entrepreneurs businesses so it's it's you know probably the perfect job for me in the end um but i don't i don't consider myself a particularly disciplined person um in that sense so i've mostly just optimized my life around making sure that i have the freedom to do things that are interesting for me yeah making sure you're just having fun with it yeah 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 and at the point that you're no longer having fun looking around and trying to see where the where the next opportunity is for you yeah and i wouldn't say it's always 100 percent all day you know just gleeful activity, right? That everything has sort of a slog to it, but it's important to kind of like zoom out and be like, okay, does this mostly make me happy? Is it moving in the right direction? You know, are things compounding in a way that I like? Um, That sort of thing. So backtracking on on a point you just made, um, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think there's a really interesting dichotomy between, you know, when you get good at something, right? Like when you, to your point on, you know, it seemed like there was kind of a fork in the road mm. um, where you could have gone into the finance side of clean tech and just invested in certain um, ventures. But it seems like, you know, on one side of the, one side of the argument is that, you know, you should, once you become good at something, it's just, or once something becomes really easy for you, it's a sign that you're just good at it now and it's time to lean in and, and continue to do that thing for the long run. And that's kind of how you're going to, you're going to generate your, your wealth or, you're going to be successful. But then on the other hand, you have your approach, right? Where it's like, Hey, if this is, if I'm not, if I'm not fulfilled or excited about this anymore, then I kind of want to jump into the next thing. Mm -hmm. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Obviously, you know, it's number two is kind of the latter is, is your perspective. Um, but what are your thoughts on the former? Yeah. I mean, this is a sort of perennial debate, right? There's like, uh, I think I read the Cal Newport book, like so good. They can't ignore you, um, on this. That's that's where that was inspired. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. but it's been going on forever, right? Follow your Mm -hmm. passion is a bad idea. That sort of stuff. Um, you know, I think if you have to give one piece of advice to everybody generically, then that way of thinking is probably right. Right. Which is like, don't try to find a job that is going to, 
you know, be your main source of stimulation and, and interest and, and wonder, um, you know, find something that you're really good at, get better at it, get paid really well to do that. And then, you know, do stuff on the side or retire early or whatever. Like that's where you should find your, your fun and stimulation. I think that's pretty good advice. Um, without any context on someone. If I, if you were just like, you have to give advice to all, you know, 7 billion people on the planet and they're going to take it. What advice do you give? It would be that, you know, but I think there is a significant portion of the population where, you know, for me, like there's just like this, the skill graph starts to diminish at a certain point for me. I mean, I don't think I've ever really gotten there, but I'm pretty sure that if I stayed in the same job for 15 years, that wasn't stimulating, I think I would start to get much worse and much more likely to burn out and things like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I think there's merit to both sides and people should consider it. I don't, I don't think there's a right answer, um, in, in this category, but yeah, I think your personality might, play into it quite a bit as well, right? Like if you're okay with a little bit of monotony and doing the same thing, then the former advice is probably better for you. But if you're, if you're kind of like yourself, um, where you get bored easily and, and you're, you're always looking for the next challenge and some kind of fulfillment, then maybe, maybe the latter advice is better for you. So I think it's highly contextual and like all advices. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's, yeah. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that just because that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I think my perspective is very highly correlated with people who end up being entrepreneurs in some form or fashion. And sure, most people are not entrepreneurs, right? For good reason. So, so I really think that um, the do something that you're good at and keep doing it is really good advice for most people. But there's a, a significant category of us that that uh, is prison. And <laughs> we would definitely not want to do that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. What is micro SaaS, and why should people be paying more attention to to micro SaaS as opposed to just the big, sexy, glamorous software companies? Yeah, so micro SaaS <laughs> is, a, is a little umbrella term that I coined um, way back when I first started blogging about my last business. And the uh, so SaaS is software as a service. This is the dominant. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of model for software companies. Almost everyone listening to this probably pays, you know, some monthly subscription for for some kind of app or, or piece of software, even if it's like Spotify or something like that. Um, so that's what SaaS means. And then micro is just kind of small, right? Uh, and what I was trying to get at then was there was this expectation when I was first starting this last business, which was about eight, eight years ago, plus or minus, um, that, you know, building a SaaS company, you needed a lot of people. You needed to go after these big markets because, you know, the the product was hard to build and you needed 50 people at least to sort of support a SaaS product. And so you had to go after opportunities that could warrant, you know, raising millions of dollars and scaling up your staff that big. You you couldn't do all that to go and, um, you know, go after some incredibly tiny niche. And the reason I coined MicroSaaS is that, you know, already there were sort of signs of life that, um, there were opportunities where one person, i.e. me, a self-taught developer, could build a full-fledged product. And a lot of people, I think that wasn't accepted wisdom at the time. But um, that, so that was the point of MicroSask was to say, hey, there are these opportunities out there and, and strategies for building a full-fledged SaaS company that one person or a small team can, can support. And that was very rare and anomalous at the time. Um, I, I wrote a blog post, I think, uh, the beginning of last year, you know, just doing like predictions. And one of my predictions is just everything is micro SaaS now, because basically every opportunity 
in you know that that can be solved with with software again with the exceptions that we talked about earlier around like machine learning and SynBio, but like you know basic web sure. app stuff uh, yep. pretty much all of them can be built and shipped to a real product that people pay money for um with you know one person or or a small team um so the, the term has lost some of its relevance in my opinion um because it's just there's so many opportunities that match it that it's it's kind of like turning into just SaaS again. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. But I think it's I think it's helpful for people to understand that. Yes, when you think about software companies generally and software as a service, you think about larger organizations with tons of employees on their you know customer success teams, etc. But you can literally start with one person, right? As you've yeah. kind of talked about in, in on your blog. Yeah, and there's a really surprising number of people who are, you know, one-person operations or very small teams that are doing millions and tens of millions in in revenue um, off of software or sort of, you know, tech-enabled kind of businesses um, yeah. these days. Yep. Your first startup idea that had failed. Sure. Obviously, failure is is critical for your development. But what what did that failure do to your confidence, and how? What, what did you do to rebound from that? Or was it just something that you were like, you know what, this is just part of the process. I'm going to brush it off and keep moving forward. Uh, well, I don't know if I just completely brushed it off. That's for sure. I mean, it was, um, it was a pretty terrible experience. It was just definitely one of the worst periods of my life was, you know, feeling like we'd sort of failed. Um, like I said, we, we did have a, a small number of angel investors. They were basically friends. So I had to kind of call them up and say, Hey, we lost your money. We're shutting down, um, which uh, they were to a person extremely cool about it. Um, and you know, knew what they were signing up for, um, yep. when they got into it, but it still sucks to, to, to have that experience. And yeah, I mean, it was incredibly frustrating, you know, especially because we never felt like we got feedback that was correct. Uh, and we ended up being completely right about like, if you pull out our pitch deck, like seven years later, it's like, oh yeah, literally everything was correct. Similar businesses, uh, were spun out of larger organizations and so they didn't need to raise funding and completely succeeded. And then were sold for $200 million, like, you know, three years later, like we were just completely dead on correct about this opportunity. And yet mm -hmm. we failed because we couldn't build the um the support from you know kind of networks and, and institutions and things like that so i definitely took that a couple of lessons to heart from that i mean one was again the value of of permissionless entrepreneurship right so you know our problem was nobody gave us permission to to build this company that we were trying to do and so i said okay screw that like you know my next business i'm going to exclusively focus on opportunities that I don't need anyone's permission to get started and start generating revenue, um, yep. which I think is is valuable, especially if you don't have a network. I do think too many people throw themselves into exactly what I did, which is you know this very low probability, high pain uh, process of trying to convince investors to invest in a first time unproven entrepreneur um, when you'd be much better off focusing on something that you can just get going and then prove your track record that way. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing though, is that the, there's the other side of that coin, which is the value of building a network, building trust, that sort of thing, which is, you know, kind of ties into a lot of the stuff we talked about. Right. I, I, I took to heart this idea that like, okay, if I'm ever going to be doing something in this other category of you need permission, 
you need to start many years ahead of when you actually need the money, support, et cetera, um, building that trust, building that reputation within that network. So um, took that to heart and it was, you know, I, I think it was probably subconscious, um, but it was definitely part of the motivation to keep writing, keep, you know, tweeting, keep launching, um, you know, keep, keep basically putting good thoughts out into the, to the world there. So. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, and that kind of spoke to, your experience and that allowed you to build those relationships as well because you know a lot of times in business everybody just assumes that you need permission to actually get something going and this is this is this conversation has been proof that that that's not necessarily the case so people should consider the alternative yeah and there's huge value in something i say all the time over and over again is show don't tell right there's just huge value in showing that you can do some smaller easier more constrained version of the thing and then saying i want you to give me permission to do the bigger version of this thing versus mm -hmm. just from complete nothing saying i have no track record here but here's me explaining to you why i'm going to be able to do it it's just night and day how different that is um you know once you've actually shown that you can do that work in some way yeah, because it's it's so much. It's obviously so much easier to just say, "Hey, I'm capable of doing X, Y, and Z," and here's proof. But once you actually prove out your concept a little bit, it take it gives you a lot more legitimacy, right? Especially yeah. when you're when you're trying to have those conversations around raising capital or um, getting people to support your idea. You know, something something even that simple. It's just carries a lot more weight. Completely. And like it or not, a lot of interesting opportunities in life involve getting past some individual or collective gatekeeper, right? And and so, you know, being it like building a great following through a podcast or through YouTube is a great way to become a published author or to become, you know, someone who acts in movies, right? There are these gatekeeping elements on one hand, but you can get started and you can show, don't tell, right? You can say, Hey, look yep. at all the people reading my blog posts. I think they would really like a book version of this. And that's just so much easier. It's just literally a thousand times more likely to get through than, um, just a, a, a cold pitch of an idea, yep. you know? Yep. And a lot of times people get kind of discouraged by the gatekeepers, right? Because yeah. things have been done, but things have been done a certain way for so long that they just, they just can't even fathom a world where things would be done in an alternative way. Um, and so they just completely turn away from the idea in general, but that's a good reminder. Yeah. I would almost frame your mindset on a lot of things as kind of a contrarian way of thinking, but then again, if you if you do think about it, it's it's actually not so contrarian after all. It just seems like you're very thoughtful um, with your opinions. So I really appreciate you sharing, man. And I highly, highly encourage everybody to check out your blog, Tyler Tringas. It's been it's been pretty fun for me to read. So cool, um, awesome conversation. And where can people find you online? And where can people learn more about the Com Fund? Uh, online, I'm Tyler Tringas, T-R-I-N-G-A-S. Um, on Twitter is easy. And then TylerTringas.com is where a lot of my writings at, uh, are, are hosted. Um, and then Calm Fund, C-A-L-M Fund.com is our fund where we're investing in entrepreneurs uh, every week. So. Awesome, man. Well, I'm excited to see what the future holds for the Calm Fund yeah. um, and for TylerTringas.com. Awesome. <laughs> but this was an awesome conversation, man. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on again. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much. This was super fun.